This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Last night, I couldn't sleep. There have been a lot of sleepless nights in the past year and a half. After cramming as much work as I can into my waking hours, pouncing on my kids to make sure they've gotten enough hugs, and on a good day, exercising, I finally climb into bed exhausted. But no sooner do I settle down and relax than the hamster wheels of my brain start spinning. Soon, my pulse is racing, and I'm thinking about what I need to accomplish tomorrow and how I still didn't do that thing that's been on my to-do list for weeks. And oh crap, I totally forgot that person's birthday because yesterday was so busy that I didn't even look at my calendar. This isn't the first time in my life when I've experienced insomnia. When I was a collegiate track athlete, I used to spend hours staring at the ceiling, visualizing my race so convincingly that I felt sick to my stomach. With all three of my kids, my first sign that I was pregnant was that I could no longer sleep. But the insomnia I experience now feels different. I can point to the exact date when it began, March 16th, 2020. It turns out I'm not alone. Stress-related insomnia due to the pandemic is so common that there's even a name for it, coronasomnia. Dr. Abhinav Singh, the medical director of the Indiana Sleep Center, calls coronasomnia a tandemic, that is, an epidemic that is caused, made worse by, or running in tandem with the pandemic. According to the Sleep Foundation, even before the pandemic, over a third of Americans weren't getting enough sleep. Sleep problems are so common that the CDC has called it a public health epidemic. Coronasomnia isn't just about being afraid of the virus, either. It stems from the latent anxiety that, for many of us, has been a byproduct of the continual changes our world has experienced because of the virus. As the months have become years, we've made adjustments, some of them for the better. But still, there's that lurking question. Is this really how life is supposed to be? It's the question that has been there in every single episode of Shelter in Place, long before I knew that this podcast would forever change the course of my own journey. In season three, which we're calling In Search of Home, we're asking that question outright. We've known from the beginning that the old way wasn't working. The new normal isn't what we're after either. How do we find our way to a better normal? One that makes this world a good home for all of us. A place where maybe we can finally get some sleep. Dr. Singh says that most of us are, in one way or another, fed up. That's not just an expression. It's Dr. Singh's mnemonic device to summarize the things that keep us up at night. Financial stress, emotional stress, distance from others, unpredictability, and professional concerns. Fed up. My family and I have checked all the boxes. Financial stress. The pandemic began for us with my husband, Nate, getting laid off from his job. Emotional stress. Suddenly, our three kids were home from school, and I was whipping myself into a frenzy, trying to become a homeschooling homesteader while also starting a new business. Distance from others. Our extended family across the country never felt so far away as when we had to cancel our plans to see them. 
Overnight, the friends and neighbors who had filled that gap through babysitting co-ops and neighborhood happy hours disappeared behind closed doors. Unpredictability, the common thread of every day, week, and month. And finally, professional concerns. That phrase seems a bit light in describing the complete overhaul that both Nate and I have been through as we've reshifted our focus to the work we're doing now with Shelter in Place. Through all of those exhausting days and sleepless nights of being fed up, versions of that persistent question remained. Is this really the best we can do? The low point of my coronasomnia came late in 2020 at a moment when I had every reason to feel hopeful. We were halfway through season two, which we titled Pandemic Odyssey, because the narrative of that season was our family's migration to Massachusetts, where Nate's mom had heroically agreed to take our kids every school day and homeschool them so that we could work. Our son, who had been behind in every subject and had hated going to school, was now an avid reader who was proud of his math skills. We didn't know when we'd return to California, but we'd made the decision to stay in Massachusetts through the school year. The podcast had grown into what it's become now, a weekly arts and wellness show about redefining life as we know it through creativity and community. I leveled up my storytelling and audio editing skills, and the imposter syndrome that had plagued me all my life was finally gone. I'd never felt so proud of anything I'd created. There were so many reasons to feel grateful, and I was, but I was also discouraged. Some days, I wondered if anyone was listening. We had a core of devoted listeners who'd been with us since the beginning of season one, people who had listened to every episode and left five-star reviews on iTunes. Nate and I still treasure every review, text message, email, and voice memo from our listeners but those interactions were infrequent. It's hard to find enduring satisfaction when download analytics are the only indication that someone's listening. I loved the work we were doing, but I didn't just want to create. I wanted to know that those creations were making a difference. Earlier that month, a podcaster friend had suggested that I get connected with an apprenticeship organization that pairs female college students with organizations that need some extra help in exchange for a membership fee. We just started working with our first two apprentices, and it was going okay. But I was having flashbacks of my own college experiences. Internships looked nice on my resume, but even the paying ones didn't teach me much. I didn't want to repeat history. I wanted to give these women an experience they couldn't get anywhere else, the kind of mentorship I wished someone had given me. The next morning, the sky was dark and the weather was frigid, but I had an idea that felt like a tiny ray of sunshine. That Christmas, Nate and I covered every surface of our apartment walls with notes for an audio storytelling curriculum, a carefully curated and distilled version of everything we learned from my MFA program, Nate's Advertising Portfolio School, my Fulbright Scholarship, my dozen years of coaching, our combined 40 years of working as creatives, and lots and lots of therapy and creative soul searching. We included resume coaching and practice job interviews, We spent as much time talking about cultivating creative habits and a healthy work culture as we did on the elements of audio storytelling. 
At the heart of every lesson was the question we'd been wrestling with ourselves all along. Why create? What's our main goal in doing this? To make money? To connect with others? To learn something? To find joy? I knew I was at my best when I wasn't just teaching skills, but inviting others into the creative process with me. Nate was at his best when he was guiding ideas and creative habits that sparked delight. All of the most important things that I learned about podcasting, I learned through creating episodes myself. We decided to keep making the podcast, but instead of fixating on download numbers or chasing sponsors, we'd use the podcast as a real-life classroom to teach and coach every step of the process, from pitching ideas to script writing to audio editing to mixing to sound design to post-production and promotion. If we did our job well, our trainees would come away with not only a distilled version of everything we'd learned, but also broadcast quality production credits that they could put on their resume, and perhaps most importantly, a creative community that would actively support and encourage them for life. In January of 2021, we launched our first cohort, adding five women to those original two of what we were then calling our podcast apprenticeship program. We were upfront with our applicants, we told them we were running a beta version of this program, and we knew there would be some growing pains along the way. We knew our approach was a little unconventional. Nate and I are big ideas people. Our methods tend to be less structured and more organic. We knew we'd have to develop more structures and systems to make the program work. We still had a lot to learn. But we also knew that if we waited to have the perfect setup, the perfect systems, the perfect organization, the perfect funding, we'd never act. We had lost so much in this pandemic year, but we still had a lot to offer. Every week had a different focus, and we customized the experience around each individual's professional and creative goals. Everyone learned how to create episodes, but some of them also focused on business development and project management branding or social media. We brought in guest speakers to help our trainees network and to fill the gaps in our own education. Every week, we asked the same questions. What's been life-giving to you this week? What's been draining? Who else on this team would you like to affirm? Week after week, we shifted responsibilities so that people could spend more time doing the work that they loved and less time on the work they found draining. Those weekly affirmations, combined with the process of creating something together, brought our team shockingly close in a short amount of time. The episodes took a lot longer to make this way. Nate and I were putting in a lot of hours to complete them, sometimes to fix mistakes that had happened in the learning process. But it was worth it to see that creative spark ignite, to watch our trainees begin to understand how stories and sound can come together to make something magical. We'd never worked so hard or had so much fun doing it. By June of 2021, 11 women had graduated from our program. And in that time, many of them had been hired as associate producers at places like Stitcher, Headspace, the ACLU, and the Center for Urban Development. Some of them had gotten those jobs despite having no prior audio experience before their time at Shelter in Place. I'm so proud of each and every one of our graduates. We've stayed in touch through a monthly alumni writing group where they can get feedback on the projects they're working on now or just catch up. 
two of our graduates are making a podcast together. It's a rare week where I don't get at least a few voice memos from our graduates telling me about some new project they're working on or sharing exciting news or asking for career advice or just saying hello. We ask each of our graduates to provide audio testimonials about their experience so others can hear what it's like to be part of this team. When I'm having a hard day, it's those testimonials that keep me going. You can hear them on our website, shelterinplacepodcast.org. Last June and the final days before we left Massachusetts for California, we were clearer than ever on our mission and vision. But as we slowly traveled across the country, my corona somnia was back. We loved what we were doing, but we also knew that we wouldn't be able to do this work for long if we couldn't figure out how to make a living doing it. We hadn't been charging for the program during those first two cohorts because we wanted it to be available to people from all kinds of backgrounds. And anyway, our program was still in its beta version. We knew that some of our graduates couldn't have done the program if they'd had to pay for it. But we also knew that to make this work sustainable, we had to have money coming in. Living in Massachusetts where our rent was cheap and my in-laws were providing free childcare meant that our overhead was low. We'd paid our bills through freelance work that we'd been doing on the side. And while we loved mentoring and coaching our graduates, there was no financial return on that investment. Now that we were heading back to overpriced California, one of the most expensive places in the country, we'd have our work cut out for us to stay afloat. The conversation came to a head the second week in June, when we met our New York graduates for the first time in person, and we all sat around chatting over a picnic at a park in Queens. I was a different person before shelter in place. Melissa Lent told us, I used to be shy at work. Now I have confidence in myself. I know that I deserve to be here, that I have something important to say. Melissa told her story in a beautiful episode called Hyphenated Identity, where she learned to reclaim the Chinese part of her Dominican Chinese American identity in the wake of Asian hate crimes. You need to stop calling it an apprenticeship and start calling it what it is, a training program. This came from Alana Herlands, whose idea for an episode on vaccine hesitancy spawned a three-part series that took a deep dive into misinformation, the Pfizer clinical trials, and the problematic history of vaccines and people of color. Those episodes were some of the most ambitious we'd ever created, and also some of the ones we were proudest of. Also, you need to change the name, Clara Smith added. Clara's story of channeling her cyclist road rage and pandemic isolation into a grassroots effort to reimagine New York City's streets had come together in a hilarious, poignant episode called Rage Road. A week later, Elin Tekle left me a voice memo to the same effect. Elin's story about cooking Eritrean food over the phone with her mom during the pandemic became an episode called Symbolic Starter, a love letter about the ways that food connects us to our families and cultures, and one of my all-time favorite shelter-in-place episodes. I would have happily paid for what you gave us, Elin said in her message. You need to start charging. I couldn't disagree with our graduates that we needed to change the name, or that we probably did need to be charging for what we were offering. We knew that we were spending many more hours teaching and training than the 10 hours a week that our trainees contributed with their work on episodes. 
Many of those 10 hours were me coaching them through each step of the production process. We weren't making any more money than we had been back in December, and our download numbers hadn't changed either. But we knew we were making a difference in the lives of our graduates. And that, we realized, mattered a lot more to us than any of those other external markers of success. We finally arrived at a compromise we could live with. Beginning with our fall 2021 cohort, we'd charge for the program, but we'd also offer as many scholarships as we could. We filed for nonprofit status, applied for grants, and in the meantime, funded the scholarships ourselves. The name change was harder. One of the first rules of brainstorming is that you entertain every possibility, even the ridiculous ones. So we made a giant list of names, everything we could think of. Some of the more comical options included pinpoint, propel, boost, bounce, liberate, flaunt, sparkle, shine, burst, and blanket greenhouse. Obviously. Then in August, Alana Herlands, one of those New York graduates who had picnicked with us in Queens, came to visit us while she was on a work trip to Oakland. You need a name that captures this creative community, she said. Something that gets at the heart of why this program is so special. You need a name that captures what it is, a collective. We thought a lot about that, about why we were excited enough about this program to lose sleep over it. How it was only through losing almost everything that was certain that we found our way to the most meaningful work we'd ever done. None of this would have happened if we hadn't had that longing to move away from isolation and toward connection. And then on the last day of Alana's visit, Nate came up with a name that finally felt right. That's it, I said when he told me. It's perfect, Alana agreed. Back in 2010, when Nate and I moved to Manila for a year after I got a Fulbright scholarship, we encountered a word that would change us forever. During those early weeks in Manila, Nate and I would often venture off alone to the Palenque, the open-air market, to Art the Galog classes, to Samaritana, a Filipino organization helping sex trafficking survivors reclaim and rebuild their lives. We spent most of our days volunteering at Samaritana, and each time one of us tried to go somewhere alone, one of the women would pull us aside and say, Ate Laura, Kuya Nate, where is your kasama? Kasama means companion. It comes from the Tagalog verb to be together, but it's also a cultural concept. At first, we just thought that traveling with a kasama was about safety, and it's true that traveling with a companion is generally safer than traveling alone, but it's also bigger than that. It's the idea that wherever you're going, life is better with a companion. I remember asking one of the leaders at Samaritana if she ever went anywhere alone. She paused to think about it and then frowned. Once in a while, I do, but it's so sad not to have a kasama. That one word, kasama, has shaped the way that Nate and I have lived for the past 10 years. It's given us a vision of the good life as a village, not a castle, a place where we need each other, rather than a place where we can survive alone. We live in a neighborhood of mostly small houses where in pre-pandemic times, almost every week we'd be invited for an impromptu dinner with neighbors, where neighborhood kids wander down our driveway unannounced to jump on our trampoline, and we love it. The name that Nate suggested that finally feels right is the Kasama Collective. 
It's shaped our vision for this training program, where every aspect of the work we do here happens with a companion. It's a foundational value that you can find in every episode, too. We say a lot here at Shelter in Place that transforming communities begins with transforming ourselves, but we need each other to do that in the first place. From faith to creativity to systemic racism to vaccines, our episodes have grown out of the conversations where we've wrestled with these topics, sometimes for months at a time, before coming to a more nuanced understanding that we can offer to listeners. There's also an implicit equality in the word kasama, an understanding that one person is not above the other. A companion is someone who makes the journey with you. There might be times where your kasama is keeping you going, or teaching you something new, or leading you to a place you've never been. But you're on the journey together, and the exchange of information and companionship goes both ways. Even as we're teaching and training our trainees, our kasamas, we're continually learning from them too. We've changed the way that we do project management because of the passion that Melissa Lent, Shweta Watwe, Samantha Skinner, and Elin Tekle brought to that process. We've made the production process more structured because Alana Herlins had a vision for doing it that could help everyone work better. Isabel Obrecht came up with the idea to share what she learned about script writing in a free webinar. And when over 200 people signed up and Isabel got a job interview out of it, we found a new way to serve the larger audio community while showcasing our trainees as experts. Last night, as I stared at the ceiling, I reminded myself to be grateful. Because these days, my coronasomnia is proof that the challenges of this past year and a half haven't snuffed out my spark. Listening back to that first episode on March 17th, 2020. It's clear I had no idea what was coming. I genuinely thought that life would go back to normal in a matter of days or weeks, and that my little podcast would vanish with it. That excitement I felt on the eve of Shelter in Place Season 1, Episode 1, came at a time when I felt trapped in my life, when it felt like I was spinning my wheels creatively while personally packing too much in. I was tired all the time, on edge as I rushed my kids out the door, barking orders at them to pack their lunches and not forget their shoes and remember their homework. Since Nate commuted 45 minutes to work, most of the daily parenting responsibilities fell to me, which meant my days were punctuated with school pickups and drop-offs and parent-teacher conferences. When I was finally alone, I'd shut myself off from the world and write as fast as I could, always feeling like I was running out of time. It took a pandemic and Nate losing his job to force me to embrace a form of creativity that would get me more connected. In each of those daily episodes of season one, I was reaching out, trying to identify all of the things that hadn't been working about the old life. I didn't want to go back to the old normal of frenzied living, and I didn't like the new normal either. I wanted a better normal, one where interconnectedness was prized above independence where life didn't feel so exhausting, where I could be on this journey with Kasamas. UPenn sleep medicine physician Dr. Eileen Rosen says that the best way to deal with coronasomnia is to provide regular rhythms in our lives, like consistent bedtime routines, bright lights first thing in the morning, and unplugging from the news and technology well before bed. She suggests setting aside what she calls worry time earlier in the day and journaling about your anxieties. And if you still can't sleep, sleep medicine psychologist Michelle Drurup says to get up and do something calming, like yoga or knitting. My regular rhythms have changed a lot in the past year. 
often my rhythms include other creators. If I'm worried about something, I find it helps to talk about it with someone who understands. On any given day, I go for walks and listen to our graduates talk about the challenges they're overcoming in their current jobs. When I hit an audio editing snag, I reach out to a podcaster friend who knows more than me. Less than 24 hours later, we're on a Zoom call and I'm learning a new skill. My worry time has become one of the most life-giving parts of each day. That moment when I remember that I'm not alone. I still have coronasomnia. I still have days when I'm worried about finances or it feels like I don't have enough time. I still feel nervous when an episode doesn't come together the way I wish it would. I still lie awake at night obsessing over how to solve some snag in our workflow or to crack the idea of an episode open. But mostly, my coronasomnia looks more like it did that night on the eve of Shelter in Place Season 1. I can't sleep because I'm excited. I love the people I'm getting to know through this work. I love knowing that something I'm doing is making a difference, even if that difference is a small thing. This weekend, I'm traveling by airplane for the first time since before the pandemic to speak at She Podcast Live, a podcasting conference put on by one of the many incredible organizations that serves women like our training program graduates. I'm going to get to meet some of the Kasamas in this industry who've kept me going and encouraged me. One of them is part of our current cohort, it's my excitement over this event that has kept me up this week. Because our friends in the Philippines were right. Life is better with a Kasama. As always, if you listen to the very end of this episode, you'll hear Shelter in Place outtakes, our gift to you for sticking around beyond the credits. But first, I want to thank by name some of the Kasamas who've made this journey possible. If these names are unfamiliar to you, I encourage you to get to know them. I've included links to each and every one of them and their work in the show notes for today. Elsie Escobar and Jess Kupferman, thank you for founding She Podcasts and creating a vibrant and supportive community to help female podcasters thrive. I can't wait to speak at your conference this Saturday. Ariel Nissenblatt, you have single-handedly changed my feelings about Twitter. Your daily encouragements and helpful advice to this podcast community make all of us better. Lauren Passell, you do so much to promote podcasters that I sometimes wonder if you sleep. And somehow, you do it all with enthusiasm and love. Thank you for supporting the work that we do here at Kasama Collective and lending your knowledge. Lauren Popish, your work with The Wave is an inspiration. Thank you for serving women podcasters and bringing your expertise to our team. Alexandra Cole, I'm so honored to be among your pod broads. Your work on the pod broads and Podraland is helping listeners find female podcasters. Bethany Hawkins, you have built your own company of women podcasters and produced your own award-winning podcast. I'm so honored that you still wanted to come and learn more and lend your skills to our training program. It's a delight to have you in our cohort. Katie Simmer, you have been a friend to Shelter in Place from the very beginning. Thank you for finding ways to support me through my worry time and inviting us into your beautiful work in Mother Mine and the Transmission Times. By now, you're probably getting the sense that there are a lot of good people in this industry, and it's true. 
I could go on for a long time saying nice things about so many people, including Alina Sarabriani, Jeremy Enns, Steph Fuccio, Elaine Grant, Meg Lindholm, Justin McRoberts, Jeanette Woods, Mila Atmos, Megan Tan, Heidi Shen, Naomi Miller, and so many others who have offered advice or encouragement. Thank you. And the biggest thank you of all goes to Nate Davis, my partner in creativity and to the women and non-binary creators who make up the three cohorts of the Kasama Collective. Sarai Waters, Winnie She, Melissa Lent, Eve Bishop, Isabel Obrecht, Alana Herlands, Shweta Watwe, Elin Tekle, Samantha Skinner, Michelle O'Brien, Clara Smith, Zara Krem, Nathan Wizard, Meridian Waters, Hannah Fowler, Nikki Schaefer, and Bethany Hawkins. Life is better with you as Kasamas. Nate Davis is our creative director. Sarah Edgel is our design director. Meridian Waters was our assistant audio editor. And Hannah Fowler was our assistant producer. And our amazing season three Kasama Collective trainees are Bethany Hawkins, Hannah Fowler, Meridian Waters, Nathan Wizard, Nikki Schaefer, and Zara Krim. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. Being part of the Kasama Collective so far has meant that I've been connected to other like-minded creative people who are dedicated to supporting one another and doing excellent work. And that all stems from Laura and Nate's vision for what a creative community could be. I've had a chance to explore interests in a safe environment where I've gotten feedback and I know that the people I'm working with are invested in my growth. To anyone who wants to grow as a storyteller and create lasting relationships and collaborators, I would absolutely recommend this program. A Huda Media Production.